Hi everyone, Dan Cassidy here. Welcome to Sustainable Investing Perspectives on the UBS Conversations podcast channel. Joining me for the conversation today, glad to welcome Amantia Muhadini, Sustainable Investing Strategist for the Americas with the UBS Chief Investment Office, as well as Mitch Resnick, Head of Research at Sustainable Fixed Income International with Federated Hermes. Our conversation today will, in part, focus on whether asset price inflation exists amongst green investment the implications of the recent spike in bond yields to ESG-linked assets, what recent extreme weather events mean for sustainable investing, and more. So, Amantia, Mitch, great to be with you both today on the podcast, and very much looking forward to our conversation. Good, good morning, Dan. Uh, thank you very much for having me. I look forward to the conversation. Good morning, everyone. Thank you, Dan, and uh, for, for the conversation. Absolutely. So, I know there's a lot of topics we want to hit on during our time together today, so let's get right to it. I know, Amantia, we have seen a very strong run of performance in many different green stocks, specifically in green tech. So with this recent outperformance in mind, Amantia, do you believe that there is a green bubble forming right now? And what might be some segments that still have investment opportunity? Great. Thanks, Dan. So it is very true. We have seen some significant outperformance over the past few weeks and months for some green tech names. But even with that, we still believe that there are still opportunities in pockets of this market. And in general, we would recommend investors to take a globally diversified approach to investing in these themes. Now, let's think about why we think there are still opportunities in the market. Really, we have to come back to the thesis behind this investment theme. Uh, we, we are already seeing um, many governments across the world, in fact, over a 100 of them, who have pledged to achieve carbon neutrality goals by the middle of the century. And the U.S. government uh, is also included now with the new administration really coming in and, and setting climate change as a priority uh, across all government branches. We've seen then these governments take action, be it in the form of the European Green Deal that was launched uh, in the late summer 2020, or with the, the Biden administration here in the U.S., including a mandate to um, electrify the federal fleet, for example, or also calling for additional uh, deployment of renewable energy. So, you know, there's all of these long-term trends and really government support is just one aspect of this thesis that that points to um, the, the need for investment around green tech and also create opportunities for green tech companies. Um, but even with that, uh, and, and in, in some ways, because of this increased attention towards this theme, we have indeed seen some, some truly eye-popping valuations for some pure play names over the past few weeks. And let me give you, you know, a specific example. Uh, we've seen some pure play hydrogen fuel cell companies, for example, enjoy gains of over 1,000% in a relatively short time. And another example, uh, if we look at the valuation for the S&P Global Clean Energy Index, we've noticed that the, that the valuations for companies in the index have, have really soared well above their long-term average in the past 12 months. Now, even with these specific examples in pure play, green tech aligned names or, or subsectors, we still uh, believe that green tech has more runway to go in terms of opportunities. Uh, 
So, you know, what are some examples for this? Um, let's go back to the hydrogen case. While the pure play names may have seen the significant outperformance already, if we look at the SMP industrial gases subsector, uh, which is which is a critical part of the hydrogen value chain, we've actually noticed that it's underperformed the SMP 500 over the past year, really looking then pointing to the potential for opportunities for catch up uh, in the near future. You know, similarly, uh, if we look at indices which capture exposure to diversified grid infrastructure um, as opposed to just the pure play clean energy infrastructure and, and names, uh, we also, you know, we haven't seen the same level of outperformance there and, and therefore we see opportunities. And now I say all of this and I should still note that we are continuously monitoring the space uh, and, and we're, we're, you know, we're keeping an eye open for, for developments as more attention as capital and capital is uh, directed towards these industries, and yet uh, we we because the long term thesis is so compelling, we think there are still long term opportunities there, and we ultimately do recommend investors to just take a globally diversified approach and look to focus for uh, on companies that have a strong earnings potential uh, and also look to gain exposure alongside the supply chains that are linked for, with these green tech industries and names well, thank you, Amatia for the the insights into what has been driving valuations, investor interest, and green tech in particular. And Amantia, as you pointed out, still some avenues out there that investors can explore in this arena. So Mitch Resnick, to bring you into the conversation, maybe shifting from opportunities with inequities over to fixed income. We all know at this point that the hunt for yield has been a very important question for investors, just given the overall rate environment that we've been living through over the past year. I know we've also been observing volatility in yields in recent weeks, which has had an impact on fixed income performance. So Mitch, from your vantage point, how has this all affected ESG engagement, high yield strategies, and how are you taking into account these market moves in your own analysis? Sure, sure, Dan. Thanks for the question. Well, you know, certainly if the hunt for yield is you want was what you want, we might have a little bit more of that these days. Um, but actually, in the high yield market itself if we were to take a snapshot where we are today versus where we were at the end of the year, we're actually in approximately the same place in terms of spread and yield and cash price, you know, a little bit softer given the moves. But there, you know, there's been two key drivers in the year to date, and we'll focus on the latter. The first is expectations of strong recovery driven by fiscal perform fiscal expectations in the U.S., the Biden administration signing um, the stimulus bill. You know, with his election, we've been on a run in cyclicals uh, and high yield um, you know, since his election, and obviously um, with the um, with with the, the passage of the um, of the stimulus bill, that's that's been affected. Now, in Europe, they're a little bit a little bit behind. I would say the U.S. in terms of stimulus, so that that um, catalyst is a, a big driver in the U.S. The second driver in terms of this expectation of macro recovery is uh, COVID. I mean, it's, it's been a ski slope since we hit our peaks in terms of infection rates and deaths. I mean, it's no ski slope that I would go down, but it's very steep down and it's flattened a little bit. So that, that, that recovery expectation is one of the key drivers. The second, and we'll spend a, a little bit more time on that, is this notion of rates, which has been clearly a headlining story. We've seen you know, violent moves wider and importantly, violent moves steeper. So, for example, the twos tens curve is at the widest point, uh, setting record levels. Um, and that, you know, that move itself 
has, let's talk about the effect on the credit market, then let's drill down into high yield and then into sustainable credit funds. So the, the effect has been that investment-grade funds have been hit the most because they're very rate-sensitive. So investment-grade funds, higher quality, has underperformed. Long end of credit curve has struggled a little bit because credit, credit curves have also steepened. On the other side of that, because of these expectations of recovery, cyclicals have done very well. Leisure and basics um, uh, have rebounded. Well, leisure's re- rebounded. Basics is doing well. And, of course, um, energy has, has uh, been performing very well since, since the election and into this year. You know, what does that mean for sustainable, sustainable-themed funds? Well, you know, ESG funds is, is a very broad category, but, for example, green bond funds tend to be very high, qual- very high quality, credit quality, uh, and they're down about 2% year-to-date, and those are focused on climate change um, initiatives. Investment grade itself is down about 3%, and often the, the leaders' funds tend to be in that higher credit quality category, the ones that um, have kind of graduated to the, to the, to the leadership roles in, um, in sustainability. So probably been a little bit of pressure there. Um, as far as high yield, that is modestly outperforming investment grade in total return, and so high yield is, has done um, a bit better. You know, as far as you know, our engagement fund it's it's unique. So I don't there isn't I can't generalize across multiple engagement um, strategies. Um, I can tell you that it is you know it is a high yield high yield fund and has been uh, outperforming investment grade. The um, what what it has done for us and our reaction to this has been it's opened up some really um, great opportunities for us. So for example, some of those tougher to find securities in the double B area, which is the higher quality, high yield area, or long end have now come in um, have come into value range. In addition to that, we've seen some outflows in high yield, particularly on the retail side, and that's made it a little bit easier easier for us to source the types of names and the types of securities that that we quite like. Well, thank you, Mitch, for sharing your analysis and what rising bond yields have meant for ESG-linked performance and fixed income assets. So maybe we can switch gears a bit, uh, take a look outside of the asset allocation table and talk about some uh, current events within this space. And I know, Amante, if we reflect back on mid-February, we did witness a fairly extreme weather event. If you look at Texas, having had experienced its coldest temperatures in 30 years, uh, that extreme winter storm caused serious damage to the Texas Energy Infrastructure Network. And of course, we have heard about the devastating human toll as well. So clearly risks associated with events like this, Amantia, but what are the risks relevant here to sustainable investing? Thanks, Dan. And I mean, yeah, we try to stay current in these conversations, right? And and this was uh, quite a striking event that we observed last month in Texas uh, with incredible human and economic costs. Uh, we saw over almost 13% of the population uh, be subject to an electricity blackout amidst this extremely cold weather. And, and you know, I don't mean to go into sort of um, looking deeply into what were the, sort of the drivers of, of this outcome, um, because this is an extremely complex situation. And in some ways, these blackouts were also a result of, of some specificities of the Texas electric grid set. 
club. However, even without going into these specificities, we we were able to derive a couple of interesting sort of lessons uh, that, that will hopefully help us prepare for the future. I mean, in some ways, this extreme weather event was really just one in a series of um of events that we've observed in, in different parts of the United States, in different parts of the world, really, where uh, where the environment is, is coming to impact our lives, our economies, and ultimately our portfolios. We know that extreme weather events in general are, are becoming uh, more frequent and then also potentially more devastating. And in part, the, the, what is driving this increased frequency um, is, is climate change as it's starting to manifest uh, across the world. And so, you know, as, as we, as we keep in mind this really just as one example, uh, what we've learned are, I'd say, are two things. First, we've, we really, looking at the, the Texas example, we've, we've identified and learned the need, uh, and, and as well as the opportunities that emerge to invest in developing, uh, grid infrastructure for all parts of the infrastructure, really. Electric, electricity transmission, generation investment, as well as distributed, uh, energy generation in ways that is, um, integrated into the renewable energy, um, sort of infrastructure and renewable energy sources that are, increasingly becoming important to consider. Um, there are renewable energy is starting to become important to consider in this existing infrastructure system in two ways, I'd say. Um, firstly, in that um, we will need to, our, our grids to be prepared to integrate uh, the the upcoming renewable energy sort of increase into the existing system. And then secondly, technologies like rooftop solar energy, for example, can help accelerate an existing trend towards distributed energy, which can help then uh, increase resilience for, for events like this. Now, the second learning is that if we take a step back and look at the bigger picture, we really need to be thinking about climate proofing infrastructure overall, as well as, uh, you know, thinking about how... Um, whether investors are are adequately prepared to reflect these types of extreme weather events or other sorts of climate change impacts on the world in the way that they are uh, thinking about both debt and equity valuations and the way that they're preparing portfolios as as we observe more of this um, uh, these unpredictable events increasing in frequency in the future. Clearly some real risks in this respect that investors need to be mindful of and a lot of concern considerations as to how renewable energy can help mitigate those risks. So maybe as a follow-up, Mitch, can you comment on how you view these extreme weather events and other climate change risks materializing in portfolios? I know we often think of equities when we think of ESG, so Mitch, maybe help our listeners understand how this all translates into risks for fixed income, in particular within the high-yield space. Sure. Um, Amati made a great point there about referring to equity and, and credit and climate proofing, which is a great phrase, and I hope you don't mind if I borrow that phrase from from time to time. Um, the reality is is that when it comes to um, environmental events, or I would, I would almost I'd rather call them climate events in a way. I mean, climate's a long-term trend. The weather is, you know, just what happens on on the day. But these events, um, look, they, they affect um, the the enterprise value of a, of a business, and that's going to have an effect on equity. And on credit. So these ESG factors are no less important for us. And, you know, what we, what we look for in, in names is something referred to as physical risks. And that's the 
this the risk assessment that the um, that a company is vulnerable that its physical assets are are vulnerable from a climate change point of view. An example of that might be say for example um, there is a, a you know a Russian company that last year had an event where its um, uh, storage facilities containing chemicals. Um, collapsed under the weight of the of the chemicals themselves because the permafrost that it was sitting on wasn't so permanent and it became soft and and it and it collapsed that's a result of uh climate change and 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 the and and um warming um uh warming weather patterns there um we will see more extreme weather events like we saw in Texas um, and, you know, wildfires, of course, that's affected, you know, um, Russian, uh, uh, sorry, a, let's not confuse Russia with California, but a, a California utility in a meaningful way. The effect that these events have on equity and credit, and then we'll drill down into high yield, is, is really going to vary on two things. One, the materiality of the event, and two, the financial strength of the company itself. So, for example, um, you know, we are involved in a, in a, in a, um, a Texas uh, utility, and through the events of, um, you know, the recent past, the, both the equity and the credit traded off meaningfully on the, on the news and the, and the terrible tragedy and what was happening. But both actually have rebounded pretty well, almost to nearly where they were. Now, that's because the credit, um, you know, there's, a, there's, a, there's, a, there's, a, you know, mean, there's a little more visibility now. And also the financial strength of the business um, is, is is pretty good, and we've seen situations where the um, the you know, the the credit traded off and then rebounded, but the equity never fully recovered because the longer term effects of the cash flow probably impaired uh, the discount rate for the um, for the equity, uh, and we you know we've seen situations where where that has happened. So in the for, in the case of high yield. Because they tend to be, you know, somewhat weaker credits relative to, say, to investment grade, and clearly within high yield, they're sort of relatively stronger and weaker. We need to have a very good sense of how these companies can see these physical risks, these environmental physical risks, whether they these companies acknowledge that, and how they're dealing with it. Do they have, are they planning? Is there um, for the, the risks and and uh, making changes to the business if they if they need to? The, one of the key components of this fund is engagement. And so having conversations with companies and being, being able to ask them these types of questions helps us from both the sustainability point of view and from a financial point of view. Um, because, you know, you're right from a high yield context, there is a risk that some of them can be a little bit more vulnerable and, um, and not quite have that ability to recover as quickly as, say, some of the stronger companies where we have seen events happen and they have managed to recover uh, back to levels that, you know, prior to the event, once the full amount of the um, uh, of the cost and payments and the capex and these kinds of things is is known. Well, thank you, Mitch, for hitting on some portfolio risk considerations, in particular when it comes to fixed income assets. So let's stick with current events. And I know Amantia, we have seen central banks of several countries begin to advocate for reform in climate change. So Amantia, what are some examples of how central banks have taken action in this space, and why are they relevant to investors? 
Thanks, Dan. And it's interesting, right? As we're thinking about the current event that that we're discussing today, it 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 may look like these three topics are somewhat disjointed, but really here we have a common thread. We're looking at climate change and the ways that it's bringing opportunities for investment. I.e., as we discussed in the green talk, the green uh, tech stocks, for example, uh, as well as then the the risk lens, uh, kind of what what the the conversation that that Mitch just had and. Uh, and now we're thinking about the risk lens of climate change really um, becoming clear and starting to be embraced from central banks and very important critical uh, market participants. So to answer, I'll answer your question in two parts. Uh, firstly, I'll, I'll share a few examples of what we've observed central banks beginning to do in this space. Um, the Bank of England made headlines last week because it's changed its mandate to include environmental considerations among its goals uh, in alignment with the the UK government's commitment to achieving net zero by the middle of the century and really ahead of the uh, COP26 meetings in November this year that are coming up in in, uh, Glasgow. It also has previously committed to to start conducting climate stress tests on UK banks starting in the middle of this year, so just in a few months, uh, which is quite interesting as a development. Meanwhile, the European Central Bank uh, is also making climate change a central part of its strategy review for 2021, and we're we're waiting to watch and see what they will announce and, and the way that this will actually manifest uh, itself in, in their uh, core strategy for the year. And, you know, coming over sort of on this side of the Atlantic in the United States, even the Federal Reserve uh, is starting to engage on the topic. Um, just a couple of weeks ago, they set up uh, a supervision climate committee, the first of its kind for the U.S. Fed uh, that will be tasked to reviewing, uh, you know, how climate change risks and considerations are embedded across their work, as well as they joined a few weeks back um, the network for central banks and supervisors for greening the financial system. So really, this is the network of uh, global central banks that are that are thinking about uh, climate and the environment uh, sort of in their activities. And, and this is just a sample of the, uh, the the types of engagements that we're observing central banks start to undertake. And we really believe that um, we'll see increased attention paid by them and, and then um, incre- different ways, basically, that are adapted to every context in, in how they will start to engage. And the question then naturally is, you know, why, why does climate change matter to central banks and how much space do they have within their mandates often tied to maintaining price stability, for example, to engage on this topic. You know, why does it matter? So in our view, uh, if, if we look at, you know, even central banks whose mandate is specifically to, to maintain price stability, like the European Central Bank, for example, or many others, uh, we would know that climate change can also have uh, an influence on price levels in unexpected ways. I mean, for example, um, as we see disruptions in our physical environment, we may see severely disrupted food systems, which may impact food, food prices, for example. Um, another way that climate change is relevant 
to central banks is that it could potentially impair the effectiveness of monetary policy by disrupting financial systems. Um, as, as again, as we see sort of increased volatility uh, on on these extreme weather events, and and we see our environment changing so quickly. So really, I mean, the, the European Central Bank, all of these central banks that we just mentioned, are are beginning to look at these climate change risks just like any other investor might and should consider to. And they're thinking about how, um, you know, climate would be potentially impacting their balance sheets and then they're starting to come up with strategies on how to prepare for these impacts. And, you know, then the question is, how is this relevant to investors? We, we believe that uh, as central banks are further inquiring uh, into these topics, there will be benefits for companies that are ESG leaders. They're already transparent uh, and as well as leading on their preparedness uh, for uh, for for climate change on generally on the environment, uh, as well as as well as have good governance and sort of are integrated really across their ESNG uh, topics or characteristics. Uh, we believe that these companies will will be benefited as as central banks are starting to recognize the value of this increased transparency and preparedness. Uh, and we also expect that in specific pockets, for example, um, like the ECB looking to increase its um, attention and investment to green bonds uh, that we may see also benefit for green bonds as one specific um, um, fixed income sort of way into sustainable investing as well as overall we would expect that as central banks come into this space uh, we will probably end up seeing increased demands for transparency uh, on behalf you know, from companies which comes back and, and, and really benefits all investors uh, who then will be able to make clearer and, you know, clear-sighted decision-making based on these factors, really. Well, it is encouraging to see how the call for action and awareness is being voiced by these institutions around the globe. So thank you, Amatia, for walking us through the scope of action being taken by global central banks and what we've seen in this space thus far. So maybe let's sweep this story into the markets a bit. Mitch, as a follow-up, as central banks and other governing bodies increase their focus on climate change, how do you anticipate this to impact the financial markets? You know, the... The key thing here is, you know, um, that the central bank is sort of one ski in a troika of, you know, three important um, uh, features in the market, right? You've got fiscal policy by governments, monetary policy by the central banks, and the regulation that stretches across all of those. So, you know, when those three components are joined up, it's a very powerful force behind this transition story and and that drives uh, interest and creates a secular wind for sustainability. You know, the, you know, you know, close to 200 companies signed Paris uh, a few years ago, and ahead of COP26, a lot, you know, countries are going to want to, you know, um, you know, show up to this event and show how, show what the progress has been. Um, and as a result of that, countries make this obligation; they put in regulation. These three important bodies get joined up. Um, and that has an effect, a trickle-down effect, to use a, a Reaganomics term, on the corporate space it, it, itself. So, you know, without repeating so much of what um, Amanti so eloquently covered, I'll cover a little bit more of the micro aspect in the bond market. So, for example, that's right, green bonds are absolutely in the asset purchase programs of the ECB. Um, so that's supporting that market. But they've also now included sustainability-linked bonds. 
A sustainability-linked bond is a bond that is proceeds are used for general corporate purposes, but whose coupon payment is tied to performance of the company hitting certain sustainability targets. And that coupon can go up, it can go down how well they do. Normally, the ECB wouldn't be allowed to buy such um, coupon mechanisms like that. But they've made an exception to support this this um, this part of the market. Lo and behold, last year there were about five billion sustainability-linked bonds issued into the market, and this year we're already getting close to 15 billion. So there's an effect that you have right there. Other things they can do is, you know, things that can be discussed are maybe fa- favorable lending rates to um, transition or to banks that are managing um, uh, their their climate risk, um, cutting equity, um, cutting the the allocation of equity to lending to stronger, uh, sustainable or green stories because they they are managing their physical and transition risks and therefore have a little bit of of, of reduced risk. So those are the kinds of incentives um, that you have. Uh, Manja covered the UK. I won't won't cover that off. The US is a little bit further behind, but seems to be, uh, you know, you know, want, wanting to catch up very quickly with the changes in the SEC, that task force that has been formed, um, and then a re-rendering, a rethinking of some barriers to entry of ESG integration in investments that the Department of Labor had thrown up and confused the market. It looks like they're rethinking some of those um, uh, previous administration moves on on that part. But, you know, these three forces coming together um, – it, it really it creates a space and encourages investment and uh, transition to a greener economy in, in, a, in, a, in a powerful way, and that has an impact on corporate behavior, on the types of securities they they um, invest in. And, you know, we think there's a, a you know a profound alpha opportunity in transition. You know, we know that the leaders, sustainable leaders and green leaders, are have performed extremely well. We think there's a great opportunity investing in the credible transition stories that are the future leaders that will be screened in um, into these uh, into these leaders types of portfolios. Well, Mitch and Amatia, it was really great catching up with you both today on the podcast and very much appreciate your insights into a wide range of timely topics and asset classes as well. So look forward to tracking the stories you have covered with our listeners today and perhaps having a follow-up conversation, though. Thank you both again for your time. Appreciate it. Absolute pleasure. Thank you, Dan. Thank you, Amatia. Great conversation. Thank you for the awesome conversation. Thank you both. And again, today we have been joined by Amantia Muhadini, Sustainable Investing Strategist for the Americas with the UBS Chief Investment Office, as well as Mitch Resnick, Head of Research and Sustainable Fixed Income International with Federated Hermes. As a reminder to our clients and listeners, the UBS Chief Investment Office authors a variety of publications and blogs that touch on timely market developments, asset classes, and portfolio allocation. These resources can be located on UBS.com forward slash CIO. That includes the March edition of the Sustainable Investing Perspectives publication. For UBS clients, you can contact your financial advisor if you would like to learn more or receive a copy of the publication directly. Sustainable Investing 
Investing Perspectives is part of the UBS Conversations podcast channel, which is available where podcasts are found, including on iTunes, Spotify, TuneIn, Stitcher, and Pandora. Visit UBS.com forward slash studios to view the entire podcast offering, as well as the new UBS trending video series. From UBS Studios, I'm Dan Cassidy. Thank you for joining us. UBS Chief Investment Office's investment views are prepared and published by the Global Wealth Management Business of UBS AG or its affiliates. The views and opinions expressed in this material by external guest speakers are those of the author, speaker, and are not those of UBS, its subsidiaries, or affiliates. Accordingly, UBS does not accept any liability over the content of this material or any claims, losses, or damages arising from the use or reliance of all or any part thereof. This material has no regard to the specific investment objectives, financial situation, or particular needs of any specific recipient, and published for informational purposes only. For a full legal disclaimer applicable to the independent investment views produced by UBS, please visit our website at ubs.com forward slash CIO disclaimer.